Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. In January 2019, we launched the What Fuels You podcast, and since that time, I have had the honor of featuring and highlighting leaders and their incredible stories. Though I'm eager to continue sharing these stories with you, I want to make space for different and relevant content for this unique and challenging time. While we all navigate the COVID-19 pandemic together, on this podcast and the upcoming ones, I'll be having more focused conversations with leaders to help answer questions, get key insights, and share stories of inspiration around how they and their teams are adapting during this new reality. I hope you enjoy these episodes of the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on this special episode of the What Fuels You podcast is Jeff Wald. Jeff is the founder of WorkMarket, an enterprise software platform that enables corporations to manage freelancers. WorkMarket was acquired by ADP in 2018. Jeff is also the author of a just-released book on the future of work called The End of Jobs. In response to the COVID-19 outbreak, WorkMarket is partnering with Volunteer Surge, a platform launched in response to the pandemic that is rapidly training 1 million volunteer community health workers to support frontline doctors and nurses and assist vulnerable populations during this national emergency. WorkMarket is providing the software to organize and manage all of the volunteers and the assignments that they accept. Thank you so much for this work. I love it. I loved connecting with you. I've been wanting you to be on the podcast, so welcome. Um, before COVID, I was wanting you to be on the podcast to talk about the book and work market, um, so I don't want to over, um, overlook those things. I think they're super important and especially relevant right now. You're on the forefront of um, what people are thinking about, um, but also super curious to know about the work that you're doing to get nurses to help the healthcare workers, so welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to be here. I'm super excited to discuss these and all other kinds of things on your program. Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate it. So before we get started talking through all the things work um, and all the things that you're doing with Volunteer Surge, you're in New York. I'm in Seattle, mm -hmm. um, two of the cities that got hit first with yeah. COVID. How is it feeling in New York right now? You know, it's... New York's been through a number of traumas, whether it was obviously 9-11 or being at the heart of the financial crisis in 07-08 because of the banking system. Uh, so New York knows how to respond. And uh, there's a lot of resilience in the city, whether it's the nightly 7 p.m., everyone leaning out their windows uh, and uh, doing two minutes of clapping and cheering for the frontline workers or, or just taking care of each other. Um, it actually, it feels pretty great to be here. And so yeah. I've had many chances to flee, but uh, th this is my home and I will stand fast here. Yeah. Are you one of those people who's um, not enjoying the quarantine, but who's finding time to kind of center and balance? You know, I will tell you, there, there are ups and downs. There are times where it gets overwhelming. I do live alone. And so mm -hmm. I haven't touched another human in six weeks. That's, that's challenging. But at the same time, you know, even though I have the opportunity to give a lot of speeches and host a lot of events, people mistake me for an extrovert. Uh, there is a side of me that is very introverted and enjoys alone time. But it, yeah. It's, yeah. it is difficult to enjoy alone time when you know so many people are suffering from a health standpoint, from an economic standpoint. Oh, but uh, I try to do the best I can. 
Yeah. There is a trend right now of people buying puppies. Maybe you want to get yourself, your building can allow puppies. <laughs> I will tell you, both of my brothers, I would then become the third member of my family to get a dog in the last two weeks. They both oh, really? have gotten dogs. It is what actually did they happened. get? What kind of dogs um, did they get? They've got something, something poos. Like Oh, well, that's what we have. Little, we, well, ours is a Labradoodle. Yeah. Like little dogs, look, they did it. Most of their kids are going through a tough time, right? Like, yeah, you can see their friends. They, a number of them have had birthdays over this period. Yeah. And then there's camp. And so All the kids it. had always wanted a dog. The parents had always resisted. But it is heartwarming to see things on the news uh, about shelters and other places that are now completely empty because yes. people have taken to adopting uh, yeah. pets. So tell me about Work Market. I've always been super curious about the company. Um, I've known about it for a while. What is it? And, and I know you were acquired in 2018, as I mentioned in the intro, but how has that changed the business? So WorkMarket uh, is an enterprise software platform that enables corporations to manage their freelancers. Uh, I started the company in 2010. It's our 10-year birthday coming up in another few weeks. Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I did not think that it would be around this long, nor I would be here this long, but uh, we have both persisted. Um, look, we were super fortunate with Work Market. We had a great team. We had a great group of investors. We raised about uh, $60 million in venture from Union Square Ventures, Spark Capital, SoftBank. Wow. And we were helping companies to organize, manage, and pay their freelance population. And as companies engage more and more freelancers, that became increasingly important. Our friends at ADP had a vision of the world where companies managed all of their talent in one place your full-time workers, part-time workers, temp workers, freelance workers, all in one dashboard. And they are the best in the world at full-time workers, uh, not just from a payroll standpoint, but from a HCM software standpoint. Mm -hmm. But they did not have anything in the on-demand world. And so they looked uh, all around and interviewed hundreds of companies and ended up with us being the best of breed, which I obviously completely agreed with. Yeah, and yeah. so they made us an offer we couldn't refuse. And I will tell you, of all of the many blessings of being a part of the ADP family, none is bigger than being a part of such a huge ship that has been around for 70 years, is one of the largest, most well-capitalized companies on the planet. My heart goes out to my friends that are running startups now, that are venture-backed, that um, and all the difficult decisions they have to make, which we don't because we're a part of ADP. Okay, so tell me about how things have changed for you since you've been acquired by ADP. I know that you said that it's like the big um, kind of robust machine behind your company and, and they've been around for 70 years, but what are you getting out of that relationship right now? Look, being a part of an organization that has 800,000 corporate customers, that yeah, wow. 800,000 corporations use ADP, um, the scale of that is mind-blowing. You know, we came in to that acquisition with six salespeople. Six. Those are the, that's, that was the size of our sales force. There are now 6,000 people that wow. are trained on the work market product out there talking to companies about it. And how has that changed you as a leader? Because now you have to, you have to be nimble. Yeah. Uh, you know, you were a startup guy and now you're a big company guy-ish. Um, Ish. Ish. How has that changed your approach? Like even right now, trying to keep your team motivated and feeling connected and. Well, a few things come to mind. One is 
you know, when I was a startup guy, the venture capitalists would always say to me, uh, you know, you're an operations guy. You're not really a visionary because, you know, I was the co-founder of Work Market. My founder was the visionary guy and I was the guy that made the trains run. And, you know, now that I'm in a big company, they say to me, you're not really an operations guy. You're a visionary guy. And so it's all the context in which someone's looking at you. Um, so, look. I have said to many people um, at at the work market team, you know, look, people go to startups because they want massive growth and they want to learn in that environment. And so there's always the concern when you get bought that a lot of your team leaves. I mean, hey, they all just got paid out, right? You're all there for the lottery ticket and the lottery ticket got cashed. So now they want their next lottery ticket. And I said to them, you know, you guys would be foolish to walk out the door because you are gonna to get to watch as big, incredibly well-run company fixes everything we did. Now look, everything we did worked, but it worked in a way that worked for a few thousand customers, not for hundreds of thousands of customers. Right. And right. so if you really wanna learn how to scale, you need to be here for a couple of years and watch as big company fixes everything we built. And you being able to go to an early stage startup and say, hey, I built it. I watched big company fix it. Now I know how to build it again from the beginning. That is a very unique experience. And I, quite frankly, am getting that experience as well. So yeah, if, very cool. if I leave to start another company, um, I will take the experience of how do I build it from the ground up better. The yeah. other thing that has come to mind during this time is that you know startup startup CEOs we're and I I don't want to overuse this term because I think it's not correct in so many ways but everyone is using this notion of a wartime footing and a wartime CEO and it, it's not respectful to those men and women that are actually fighting actual wars but let's stay with that example for a second startup CEOs are wartime CEOs we spend our entire lives a few weeks away from bankruptcy. Like we are always worried about the survival of our companies. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden to see friends at large companies, you know, even some of the people sometimes at ADP think, oh my gosh, what's going to, what's going to mean? And they're operating in these very rapidly changing environments and customers going out of business and all this other crazy stuff. And to me, I'm like, yeah, this is, you know what I call this? Tuesday. This is yeah. Tuesday. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, absolutely. Just another day. This is what we live with as startup people is that we yeah, are yeah. always on a wartime footing. And so yeah, that's yeah. been super interesting. I'm sure. Yeah. And there's no such thing really right now. I've been on, I got asked by a um, journalist this morning on a call, what, um, what was happening as far as candidates being open? Are they more open right now to hearing from a recruiter? And I'm like, I think just people just feel like most people don't feel like they're on um, stable footing. And so yeah. usually that's the startup people or, you know, it's big company, it's small company, it's mid-sized companies. Everyone's a little bit like confused right now about where they stand. And yeah. like you say, yeah, startup CEOs are used to that feeling. I love that. So pivoting to, to you personally and, and your book, what made you decide to write a book? Um, I know it's called The End of Jobs. It is. So that has me intrigued. Um, what is it about exactly? And and without um, any spoiler alerts, because we want to read it, we want everyone to read it. What are some of the key takeaways and why should people be reading it right now? Sure. 
So, you know, I will say I've been writing this book for six years. It was six years ago that I first decided to, to write something. It was, it was on the encouragement of our marketing teams and of various people that I spoke with at conferences. And they said, oh, you should take all this great information about the on-demand economy. You should write a book. And I thought, okay. And so the book has taken so many twists and turns um, over that period. The key takeaways from the book are that we need to look at the history of work to understand what changes companies have gone through, workers have gone through, specifically at the points in time where there have been huge increases in technology, big technological advances, things around the industrial revolutions that have occurred around mechanization, electrification, and computerization, huge step functions in technological change that so much productivity increases had occurred that so much power went to companies and the balance of power between workers and companies. And that becomes important to understand in a historical context because we're going through another change now. The robots and AI represent the fourth technological step function we've seen as a society. Some people call it the fourth industrial revolution. Our friends at the World Economic Forum call it, you know, fourth industrial revolution and they're doing a lot of great work and study on it. Regardless of what you call it, companies and workers and therefore society needs to rebalance because these changes are happening now. And so the main takeaway of the book is what can we learn from the past in order to predict the future? And so what, what can we learn? We don't want you to give away the whole thing, but what do you think people should be thinking about? So, you know, I, I talk a little bit in the book about one of my favorite quotes uh, from history which is, if machines improve but a little bit, there will be no more need for human labor. Shauna, do you know, do you know who said that? Um, I don't. Plato said that in The Republic. And so this is a challenge that humanity has thought it was going to face. And so the main you know, conclusion of the fourth industrial revolution, or I actually call it the first services revolution, is we are going to go through this change in as we go through it there will be the doomsayers as there always are oh my god mm -hmm. all the jobs are going to go and people will overreact to headlines as we tend to do but we will end up in a much better place as we have in each of the other industrial revolutions absolutely but and here's the big but people gloss over the transition that occurred in each of those industrial revolutions. Yes, we did end up in a place with higher standards of living and more jobs and everybody better off. But the transitions were really difficult. Communities were left behind, classes of workers were left behind, people were terribly abused, there was literally blood in the streets. And so let's not pretend these transitions are easy and let's not pretend that we do them well because we don't. Mm -hmm. And so while I actually predict in the book that there will be no net job losses, again, repeat, no net job losses from robots and AI, there will be 15% of jobs eliminated from robots and AI, but new jobs will be created. But it's the retraining of workers that is, to me, the big challenge of our time. Mm -hmm. How do we go and take the people whose jobs will be eliminated and train them for the jobs that will, be, that will either be created, new jobs we never even thought of, or industries that will grow, because as a society, I would argue we have a responsibility to retrain those workers and to help those left behind 
because it is just for the betterment of all of society. Yeah. So, oh my gosh, my brain right now, Jeff is saying ding, 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 ding. The, the mommy side of my brain is like, okay, what do I need my kids to be making sure that they're learning and thinking about? The other side of my, well, knowing how to code. They, they just don't, they're not, not feeling it. I've tried. They're like, I've eh. tried with my nieces and nephews. They're they're like, don't. Eh. But no, I completely agree. But then there's the other side of me that's like, people talk about um, recruiting as an industry being replaced with AI, you know, um, and machine learning. But I'm like, what am I uniquely situated to do? And that's the nuanced stuff that only humans can do and feel yes. and smell and touch that you can't really teach. Well, it's interesting because as part of the book, we are doing something called the Future of Work Challenge, where I've gotten 20 of what I think are the most interesting, thought-provoking thinkers on the future of work, former head of the largest labor union in the country, former CEO of the largest oh, firm in the country, CHROs of some of the largest companies in the world. Each of them has written their essay on what the world of work looks like in 2040. And I am okay. putting up a $10 million prize for whoever is the most correct. And in talking to each of them, I always ask the question, what advice would you give to somebody that is just beginning their career to most prepare for the world of work? And their answer has actually been pretty uniform. And it has just been, be prepared for constant change, that the rate of change is changing and people have to constantly be in a continuous learning mindset. Yeah. The jobs of today will simply not be the jobs of tomorrow. Yeah. You've got to be able to pivot. You got to be nimble. You got to be flexible, and you got to be able to um, to adjust and adapt. Um, that's, that's an interesting takeaway. I don't know that I would have thought that that would have been the response. Yeah. Um, and I can't wait to see who gets the ten million dollars. You just got to have it in the piggy bank for when that occurs. Uh, I have set aside a chunk of money. It is not exactly ten million, but in theory, uh, based on certain uh, interest rates and compounding, it will grow to that amount on January first, twenty forty. Wow. Okay, you're multifaceted. Um, do you do you think that there's a weird timing right now around what you do and your book and all of it kind of coming to fruition right around this time? That's like. Nobody knows left from right, and they're looking to people like you to to help them anticipate some sort of something um, as uh, far as the future. No question. I mean, you know, look, the number one question I always get asked now is, well, how how is COVID changing the future of work? Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, we're doing a webinar next week uh, or coming up um, about that that uh, that issue exactly with ADP, and so. I'm gonna. Um, I definitely am gonna tune into that because I am just curious. Like, how is this gonna affect us as far as remote work, as far as freelance work? Well, I, I'll tell you this, Shauna. The one of the main focuses of the book, one of the undertexts, I should say, is we need to use data. So many people take jump points and just go with it. And the example I talk about a lot in the book is when I first started Work Market. Everybody said that by 2020, 50 percent of the labor force would be on demand. And in, in, I started work market in 2010, so in 10 years. And there, you know, two, there are a few important points about that. First, we need to know that you know, the on-demand labor market at the time was 25 to 30% of the labor force. One important point, no change has ever occurred that rapidly in the labor force, ever. Two, the on-demand labor market had not grown that much over the preceding 10 years. And so as people make those predictions, they were making them based on no data. 
And you have to be super, super wary in the world of labor statistics when everybody, anybody makes some overarching you know, mass prediction because they're very rarely come true. And so when people say, oh, how is COVID going to affect the future of work? The, the right answer to that question is, I don't know, right? Like there's just not enough data. Will mm -hmm. companies massively move to remote? No, they will not. Will they move to remote in a quicker way than they were going to do before the crisis? Definitively, yes. Mm -hmm. There are so many interesting things about the comeback plan, and a lot of people are working on some very interesting things around that. I mean, you need to think about everything. You need to think about childcare if the it. schools aren't open still. You need to think about elevators. How do you get people up into buildings if you really only want one or two people in an elevator at, at, at a time? You certainly aren't going to jam a bunch of people in, even if they're wearing face masks. So yeah. the getting up and down in the elevator may take a half hour now. So, yeah, so it's like, might as well work from home. Yeah, it's, yeah. productivity is going to be super interesting. But, and I think innovation is going to be interesting right now, too. Know, well, look, th this is where data becomes really important. And so 10 years ago, 2% of the labor force worked remotely. That was the totality of the people working more than 50% outside of the office. So they could be completely working from home, they could be hoteling, they could be, you know, whatever. That increased to 3% prior to the crisis. So 3% of labor force, that is a one, that is a 50% increase over, over a 10 year period. That's actually a huge increase in the world of labor statistics. We don't see things grow that much. That was driven by things like Zoom and Slack and all the things that people are getting to know now that enabled that. And it was usually driven by a pull, meaning it was the worker saying, hey, can I work remote? Yeah. When companies didn't like it, companies didn't like it for a few reasons. One, we had bosses that just would say, I just think everyone should be in the office. That was their mm -hmm. rationale. Yeah. I just think that. It was driven by the fact that companies didn't have the infrastructure to allow you to work from home. They weren't comfortable from a security standpoint, allowing you to VPN into systems, there were all kinds of issues around policies and procedures. Okay, all of that you know, has to be weighed against the fact that remote workers statistically are more productive, are more engaged, have lower attrition, cost you less, it costs the worker less, it's more environmentally friendly, the worker's happier. That's what all the studies said. Interesting. So, what you're going to see now is instead of a poll where the workers are going to want this, you're going to start to see the beginning of a push. And so prior to the crisis, I would have had made the statement, remote work will continue to grow as a part of the overall trends on the future of work, but the low-hanging fruit has been removed from the system. And so maybe it grows another percent, so 33% growth over the next 10 years, gets to 4%. Now I would tell you I think it's going to get to 8% over the next 10 years, and I think the majority of that happens in the next three or four years. And some people would say, oh my gosh, 8%, that's not that much. Again, let's use data. 42% of jobs in the United States can be done from home. That is the sum total. That's so why wouldn't it be higher? Why is 8%? Look, 8% is just, you know, when you look at things like police officers and manufacturing jobs and massage therapists and- Oh, haircuts. so you're saying the whole, I'm, of course, I'm Adam, going to like corporate. Okay, yeah. all jobs. Yeah, no, of course, jobs. a lot of jobs just have 42%. to be- 42%. We okay, are actually the highest on the percent that can work from home of any country on the planet. The highest in the United States of America. Interesting. So 
if 8% are, that's to say that 25, almost 25% of the people that could work from home or 20% are working from home. That's mm -hmm. mind-blowingly high. And also yeah. keep in mind, when you go from 3% to 8%, that 5% increase in the labor force, you're talking about 8 million workers that used to go to an office that now will mostly not. Because again, the work from home definition is just 50% of the time or more. Yeah. So that is to say that office space starts to compress, but you have to weigh that against the de-densifying going on in offices. That's the big word being used right now as companies talk about going back is de-densifying. Yeah, de I've had a couple of friends who are in commercial real estate ask me about that, my thinking around it. I certainly don't know. If you're saying like if we have, right now we have 3,000 square feet, maybe we only need 1,200 square feet? Or are you saying like, I'm, hey, that we're going to have six feet apart? Uh, I think the two times. may offset each other. Is that yeah. the number of square feet per person is going to increase, but the number of people that you need square feet for may decrease. Hmm. And so the, it, it'll be interesting to see. But again, to the main point, we just don't know yet. Yeah. Well, it's it's incredible that you have the advantage of all the data. And it's just like in your mind, because you've been studying it for so long and it's you've made a career of it. I've got a page um, of notes. Page of notes for <laughs> me. I keep glancing at it. <laughs> well, you've got your page of notes, but I'm saying like you're really in the thick of this. Yeah. And um, I'm sure that most of the webinars that you're going to do in podcasts and different things that you're going to be talking about are going to be right in this. And the timing also of, um, and of how you guys got involved with Volunteer Surge yeah. is super interesting. How did that intersection happen and partnership? Sure. Um, and what role do you get to play in this? Because that's also a way of feeling like you can actually do something right now. You are 100% right in terms of, you know, it's a way you could feel like you can do something. I will tell you, having, knowing that our team has a way to kind of help get into this fight, to help those on the front lines doing the most work, the doctors, the nurses, the other healthcare professionals, it has certainly boosted our team's morale to know that oh, for we sure. can do something. For and sure. so this all started with a, a very good friend of mine, Jonathan Dariani. Jonathan's a very talented ed tech entrepreneur, and he has a lot of online training programs. He had worked with the Saudi uh, with the Saudi government when MERS broke out to help train 50,000 uh, frontline healthcare workers. And he said, "Hey, I'm gonna. I want to do the same in the United States, you know. And you know, we can use this program." And so he got a bunch of organizations, Amazon and Salesforce and LinkedIn. Uh, that we're helping. And he said, look, you know, we're going to do this training. We're going to train a million certified nurse aides to overflood the front lines. Jeff, you know, I'm calling you because I'm asking for your advice. I need three pieces of software. I need a piece of software that can help organize all of these volunteers so we understand who has what skills and, you know, a profiling structure. And then second, I need a piece of software to manage them so I can send them assignments, but the assignments have to match what's in their profile. So it needs to be a customized assignment form to send the work out and they have to use their mobile phones to check in and check out. And then third, I need a way to pay them because we're hoping that these move from being volunteer assignments to paid assignments. And so can you recommend some software vendors that I can get on the phone with? And I was like, no, no, I can't. I said, I can just give you work market because work market does all of that. We help you organize, manage, and pay. And I will commit to you, even though I no longer have the authority to do that because I'm a part of ADP, uh, that we will you know, not charge you anything or whatever. And then obviously I ran up the flagpole and it was resounding yes super quickly. Uh, That's incredible. And then look, 
we were able to get this whole thing up and running in a few weeks. And the only reason we were able to do that is because for years we had been building the infrastructure on APIs on so many different endpoints around the security on those APIs, mm -hmm. around the configuration of our customers' data structures and, and field structures. If that work hadn't been done over the course of years, we wouldn't have been able to respond to this call. But over a few weeks, working with those teams, uh, this company called Absorb, which is a learning management system, we built the APIs. There are thousands and thousands of people that have now gone through that training that have come into the labor cloud on work market. Mm -hmm. And look, it took us a few weeks to build it. It takes a worker at least a week to take all of the training to get. Yeah. How long is the training? Well, how many hours do they need uh, to train? 40 hours. 40 hours. About, and is this about. all over the country? How do yes. people hear about it? Aside from us, of course, telling it of on course. this podcast. <laughs> um, Megan Kelly uh, is leading the PR oh, efforts, great. and so we've done a lot of PR, but it's just at volunteersurge.com for okay. some reason that, that URL was available, so we were able to get it for $19. Fantastic. Uh, so we got volunteersurge.com, and so thousands of people have gone through it, There are now, or tens of thousands at this point. There are thousands of people in the labor clouds, and they are being mm -hmm. deployed as we speak. Uh, to help at not only hospitals, but nursing homes, mm -hmm. jails, other wow. places where there are vulnerable populations where the nurse aides can be doing blood pressure and temperature and a bunch of other things so that the nurse practitioners and the nurses and the physician's assistants and the doctors can be performing higher skilled tasks and not right. spend time on these tasks. But what's become interesting is that as we move to this next phase in our humanities battle with this, uh, with this virus, the next phase is going to be testers and contact tracers. As we start to remove lockdowns and start to monitor a population that's moving around, you need to identify somebody that comes down with a virus, which will still happen until there's a vaccine. And you need to be able to quickly identify who they've been in contact with, see if those people are sick, isolate them and isolate everyone along those chains. And if you can do that effectively, which South Korea, Taiwan, and a bunch of other places have done already, you can help maintain our wellness while we move towards herd, herd immunity and a vaccine. Um, and so Volunteer Surge will hopefully play a role in that as well, because we're going to need about 200,000 people trained up on that task. There are currently mm -hmm. at health care places around the United States, 2,000 people trained on that task. We will need wow. about 200,000. And so volunteer surge will play a role in that as well. This, this is incredible. I've like chills. This is amazing that you're able to do this and this must make you feel really good. But I'm curious, are there any liabilities, not necessarily for you because you're just the conduit to make it happen. And, yeah. But for volunteer surge, do they have to sign some sort of release? What if they get COVID while yeah. volunteering? So any interaction through the work market platform, you have to go through the work market terms and conditions. And so there's obviously all kinds of liability waivers and things of that nature. We didn't change our existing policies. We didn't add yeah. anything. Everything yeah. was inherent in the way things work. But let me go back to the question in terms of, you know, what am I doing? You know, I will tell you, Shauna, after that initial phone call, I've done pretty much nothing. Like, it's this team at, at Work Market, uh, our solution engineering team, John Murcott, John Burgess, Clifton Alexander. You know, these are the guys that are up all night, you know, working 24-7, getting all this stuff up. 
Um, my role was literally just to take the phone call and ask for permission uh, up the chain, which I got in two seconds. And then, yeah, I, well, I it's also you had the foresight to just quickly think, A, I want to give this, I don't want to charge for this. And B, you have the contacts, right, of, of the friend. So sure. you, are do, you are doing something and, and it doesn't really matter what role, we all have a role to play. <laughs> and so I, I personally think you should feel great. And, um, and I can't wait to get this podcast out for other people to know about it because in Seattle, I'm sure there are tons of people of that would love to get involved. So I'm assuming this is just national right now, right? It's just in the US? Volunteer Search is, is a US and Canada. The work market platform will enable it to go global when it is ready. When it's ready. Okay. So you've got work market, you've got volunteer surge, you've got the combination of working with ADP. And I'm sure that your brain is going in a million different directions, just preparing for um, all these different speaking engagements that you have also. On a personal note, like how are you, you said you're, you're finding that you're um, maybe enjoying being a little bit more introverted, but how are you staying balanced I mean, look, I will not pretend that it has been easy for me. I mean, any problem I have, I am unbelievably conscious of how high class a problem that that is. So yeah. I always kind of take that breath. But there have been a few things that have helped me remain, you know, of a cheery disposition, helping remain productive. The first is is prayer. You know, I get on my knees every night and I just say thank you. Um, which is not a part of, you know, Jewish theology. It is just a practice that I instilled for me, for myself, just to say thank just you. Just recently, just since COVID uh, no, or like years I've, ago? I've been doing this for almost 20 years, just to wow. get down and just say thank you. Well, I mean, a gratitude practice, they do say, has a very strong link to happiness, regardless of the religious aspect of it. It's just yeah. more of a spirituality, feeling connected. 100%. Yeah, completely 100%. agree. Um, the other thing that helps me is is helping others, you know, and it's whether it's the people in my life, you know, whether it's personal trainers or other people I work with that are really having an economic difficulty and supporting them, continuing to, to pay them, um, you know, giving them Christmas tips, you know, now, and I will give them again in Christmas at Christmas, but just say, hey, thought you could use this now. Um, mm -hmm. That's been you know, it, it, it is another thing that is documented that if you help others, you end up just feeling get, so much better. Yeah. Get so you much get better. so much out of it. Absolutely. And then, you know, exercise. You know, I'm doing two a days. Um, you know, I used to watch YouTube and I'd watch these videos on Marvel movies and yeah, other yeah. kinds of silly things. And you get trapped in like the YouTube rabbit hole where you watch one video and then it immediately starts the next video. You're like, oh, yeah. I'll watch another. I'll watch another. Turns out the same thing is true for ab workouts. If you put on an ab workout, YouTube starts the next ab workout right away. So you're like, oh, so you're working out on YouTube. That's an interesting. I do use okay. YouTube. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, look, one of the other just fortunate things that I have is Central Park on my doorstep. And so yeah. I get into the park, you know, I stay socially distant and, and take every precaution, but getting into the park and being around greenery has been a blessing. Absolutely. When I lived in New York, I um, did not live near the park. I lived in uh, Union Square. And sometimes I had that feeling of like, I just, I love the city. I love the pulse. But certainly right now when there's not that pulse, yeah. um, I would be craving uh, what we have here in Seattle, you know, green and mountains yeah. and water and at least green. So hundred percent, I would imagine that uh, Central Park is offering a lot of calm energy yes. right now. Yep. So 
Um, I always ask this at the end of every podcast, and I feel like you kind of almost just answered it, but it's, it's a different way of asking it. Like, what fuels you? You know, so having listened to some of your podcasts, I kind of I kind of knew this question was oh, coming. Oh, thank you. Oh, I didn't know that. Thank you're you. Amazing. Oh, um, thanks. You know, and and you know, I I think about the things that kind of get me excited, and there are the things that fuel me. I think are you know, saying helping people is just a little too trite. Um, it's specifically the people that are in my life that work really hard and haven't been given the opportunities that I've been given, right? I'm very conscious of the fact that I grew up in this amazing family. And yeah, look, I worked really hard for what I have and I don't apologize to it for anybody, but I'm aware of the fact that there are people that are just as smart, that work just as hard though, that couldn't get the internship at JP Morgan because you know their cousin didn't know the guy. Yeah. And so helping those people, there are a few notes that I keep that I've received over the years one specifically from a colleague's mother who wrote, I don't know what you saw in my daughter, but if you hadn't done the things you had done, first in hiring her when there were 10,000 people that wanted that job, and then coaching her, and now she has not a job, she's got a career, I don't know where my daughter would be if she hadn't met you. And Aww. I can't thank you enough. And there's all these things, and I was crying while reading it. Of course. And I reread it every now and again, and that's what fuels me, is knowing yeah. that I was able to make an impact, but I didn't make an impact out of charity, right? I ain't an impact because this young woman works her tail off. Yeah. And she's got a great attitude. And so for people that, you know, say, hey, what, can, what else can I do to help? And people that are there first thing in the morning and their last day at night, and again, being in the office is not necessarily a representation of productivity, but they're working all the time and they are busting their butts. If I can help those people, that's what fuels me. Yeah, I love that. And that that one note from that one mom is probably, you know, that's what you have physically yeah. and tangibly. I'm sure there's others, but imagine how many people you've touched that you might not even be aware of because they haven't said those words to you. Just knowing that you're in that mindset um, I'm sure that you are mentoring without realizing at a lot of people. And I, I feel like now I've got you in my, um, in my little trusted circle of people that I can call on. Um, cause I'm sure this is going to be an ongoing question. So I may have you back on, we're going to see where, where we are. I wish I could be in on the 10 million thing. <laughs> 2040. Well, hopefully by 2040, 10 million doesn't mean what it means today. But Are you uh, kidding? We'll I'll take it. Anyway, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great weekend. I really appreciate you being on the podcast. Such an honor to be here. Thank you for everything that you do. Yeah. Stay safe. Be well. Yeah, you too. Take care. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You. Thank you.